This week's parsha is parsha is Bay. We know Bay is Gematria three, which represents the three makes, the three remaining out of the ten makes, seven of which we learned about in last week's sadra, three in this week's, and these were the final three blows, the Makabipatish uh, of the Empire of Paray which HaKadosh Baruch Hu decimated in order to show Klal Yisrael in the world that he is the Rabbi Nishleilam and that Klal Yisrael is the Amma Nidhar. There's an interesting thread that runs through a lot of the episodes in this week's parsha. If you look carefully through the Psukim and through the Chazal, that's we're very concerned, it seems, for what the Egyptians would think about us were a certain event to happen or not to happen. For example, in Matas Cheshach, Rashi brings why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu bring Cheshach on the Egyptians? What was the purpose of putting, of turning out the lights in Egypt for that, for the period of that Makkah? And Rashi brings the famous Medrash that in that dark, Chal Yisrael had many people that really had no appetite to leave Mitzrayim. They wanted to stay in Mitzrayim, even though they were slaves, they were sort of content being slaves. They had no interest in leaving in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Four-fifths of Chal Yisrael were in that camp. There wasn't a small minority of people. If you do a cheshpan mathematically, it would come out to about 2.4 million people out of Klal Yisrael, if there are 600,000 men that actually left Klal, left Mitzrayim, there would be 2.4 million that died during Makas Cheshach, so that the Egyptians would not recognize and realize that Klal Yisrael also were plagued by the Makkah, were also killed by the Rabbi Nishalem. It was done in the shadow of darkness. HaKadosh Baruch Hu made Makas Cheshech in order so that all of this death of millions of Jews would not be recognized by Parah and by Mitzrayim, and they shouldn't point to us and say that, oh, it's not so bad that we're being hit by these Makas, because Kali Yisrael is also being hit by these Makas. So that, so that Mitzrayim doesn't say that HaKadosh Baruch Hu went out of his way to make this Makkah called Cheshach, to turn out the light so that under the veil of darkness, these 2.4 million Jews who would die because they did not want to leave Mitzrayim would be able to be buried without Mitzrayim recognizing it and without being able to point a finger and saying that Af Haim Waku Kamaynu that they were also hit just like us. Now, that I understand. I could understand why the Rabbi Nishayim was concerned with such a, 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 a concern that Mitzrayim may have, because after all, that's a lot of Jews to die. Millions of Jews dying could very easily you know, show up on the radar of the Egyptians and say, oh, the Jews aren't so great either. We might not be tzaddikim, but they're certainly not either. So that I understand why HaKadosh Baruch would be concerned with what the Egyptians would say. A little bit more confusing, though, 
is what we find elsewhere in the parsha in Parak Yodalet Pasuk Chav by Makas Barud, by Makas Becheres rather. By Makas Becheres it says, "V'lo yitain hamashkes lavei albatecha lingai." Hakadosh Baruch Hu says that all Jews should stay indoors the night of the Lela Yitziah, the night of Makas Becheres. Why? So that if there are any firstborn Jews walking the streets, then the the mashkes, the destructive angel, might come and kill those firstborns as well, and that would not be good. So the Gra asks the question. He says, "Who is this mashkes? Who is this mashkes that we are afraid that firstborn Jews, if they are not found in the protective shield of their home?" might be subject to getting killed, who is the Mashkas? The Rabbi himself, who say in the Haggadah, was the one who executed the Bechayrus. It says that, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu V'avarti Beret Mitzrayim Ani V'loi Malach V'yikesi Kal Bechar Beret Mitzrayim Ani V'loi Sarach Ani Hu Ani Hashem V'loi Achar I am the one, says Hashem, that's going to kill the firstborn. HaKadosh Baruch Hu was in control that night of destroying the firstborns. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wouldn't make a mistake and start killing the Jewish firstborns. He knew, Bidatko, who to kill. Who is this mashkis that we're talking about? Stay indoors, put the blood on your doorposts so that the mashkis won't come and kill you. So the Gros says, fascinating thing. He says, you're right, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was not going to kill the firstborn of the Jewish people. He wasn't. He was out to kill the firstborn Egyptians, not the Jews. But there would be firstborn Jews who happened to, their time might be up that night. Every morning, you know, if you open up a newspaper, there's an obituary, which means that people die every single day. And it's possible that there might be some Jews who happen to be firstborns and they might also, their time might be up the night of, of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And the Mashkis is the Malachamabas, whose job it is to take the life of anyone who HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, okay, this is the end of his life. So the Mashkis would come and kill rightfully those people, those Jews who their 120 years are up or their lifetime is up. How many Jews are we talking about? A handful, maybe one, two, five, ten. How many firstborn Jews are going to bedafka die the night of the of Yisrael just because it's their time to die? You don't see thousands of people dying every day in a in a in a small population. It's a handful, and if one or two Jews of those that would die are firstborns, so Hakadosh Baruch Hu says. I want you to stay indoors, that way you won't die, the Malchamavis won't get you. Why? Because if one or two Jews die that night, that are firstborns, that will wreck my whole plan, the whole Pursume Nisa of the Makas Bechayres, that I'm killing the Egyptian firstborns, will completely be torn asunder because of a few Jews, the Mitzvah might point a finger to them and say, okay, we might be killed tonight, but they're also being killed tonight. That's a very strange time already. 
Makas, I understand, millions of Jews dying, that's going to really, you know, rock Egyptian society. Like, wow, the Jews are not tzaddikim either. And so we're the same as them. But a few Jews dying, there's thousands and thousands, tens of thousands maybe, of firstborn Egyptians dying on a given night. Obviously, it's not a coincidence. Obviously, it's, it's a real makah from HaKadosh Baruch And that might all be put into jeopardy. The shock and awe of that experience could be put into jeopardy because of a handful of Jews that are dying the same night. Not millions. A few. So we have to stay indoors so that that shouldn't happen, that God forbid some Jew would die that night and the Egyptians would then say that they're also being hit just like us. That's a very difficult thing to understand. Why would HaKadosh Baruch be so concerned about that? Another example in this week's parasha where you find that we're very concerned for what the Egyptians may say is HaKadosh Baruch says to Moshe Rabbeinu at exactly the strike of midnight, the stroke of midnight tonight, I will go out of Mitzrayim, I'm going to kill the firstborn. When Moshe Rabbeinu repeats this message to Parai, he edits it a drop. Instead of saying Bachatzais, he says Kachatzais Halayla. Hakadosh Baruch says about midnight, I will be going out of Mitzrayim. Why did he say that change? Why did he say Kachatzais? Rabbanim says to say Bachatzais. And Chazal tell us Rashi brings it that Shulayimru it's Dagnine Paroi that the the astrologers and the cabinet members of Paris cabinet, they shouldn't say that Moshe Badaihu. Moshe Rabbeinu is a charlatan. Moshe Rabbeinu is not genuine. Why? Because he said that it was going to take place at Chatzais, and on our watch, it's not exactly Chatzais, a few minutes off, early, late. Because of that, that would basically, again that would shatter the whole message that Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to present. If it wasn't precisely at Chatzais, it was at Chatzais. But if by their reckoning, if their watches are a little bit off, their sundials, whatever it is that they were going by, if that was off by a mashero, and they would say, oh, it wasn't at Chatzais, that would say, that would lead them to the obvious conclusion that Moshe Rabbeinu is a complete fadoi. He is a charlatan, he's a faker, he's not, he's not genuine, he's not for real. And so Moshe Rabbeinu had to hedge himself a little bit, and he, he had to say, kachatzais, about midnight, so that no one would say that he's a badoi. Isn't that a strange thing? Moshe Rabbeinu is ten for ten with Makis. Every prediction that he made, he was right. There's no room for error with Maisha Avenu. All of a sudden, if the Maka begins a little bit before or after Chatzais, that would make the Itztagnine power all of a sudden say, ah, that's a joke. This whole thing is just, he's, he's a faker, it's not for real. He was off by a couple of minutes. It must be that the whole thing is not true. So we see three instances in the parsha that we're so concerned for what the Egyptians might say, that we have to take such precautionary measures, we have to bring Cheshach on Egypt for, for a week, and we have to 
In Makas Bechayrus, we have to make sure that the Jews stay indoors, and that will protect them from Malchamaves, so that the Mitzvah won't say that they're also dying tonight. And Moshe Rabbeinu has to go and say, Kachatzeis instead of Bachatzeis, we're so like consumed by what the Egyptians may say. What's going on over here? Why? Who cares what the Egyptians will say? And does, it's not even rational. It's not by the by It's a little. It is rational. But by the other two examples, why? Who cares? Why would Egyptians think that? Why would they say that? Okay, a few Jews are dying, so therefore we're okay. Also, that doesn't make sense. And why would they say that Moshe Rabbeinu is a badai? And if they do say he's a badai, why do we care so much? So there's two approaches to these questions. One of them is taken by the Briskarov. The Briskarov explains, he doesn't bring all three examples as we brought today, but he says, Pinegea, these in such an yanim about how the Jews always have to be careful because the, the Goyim might not see it exactly the same way that we do it. He says that the Gemara says in Erevin and Afyotesim and Aleph that Rishoyim Afilo Apischei Shalgehenim Enam Shavim Betshuva which means that a Rasha, even if he's standing at the entranceway to Gehenim and you think, okay, you're about to die, you're about to go to Gehenim, do tshuva. A Russia will not do tshuva. He will not take advantage of the opportunity of tshuva because he's so able to always justify everything that he does. A tzaddik is somebody who we know, you know, we do an Avera. We do Averas. Unfortunately, we do Averas. But what makes us good inherently is that we recognize we do the Avera, we own up to the fact that we do the Avera, and we, we, we take advantage of this gift of tshuva, and we do tshuva. We don't look to blame and to obfuscate. We just say, okay, I did it, my bad, I'm sorry, I have charata, let's move on, I want to be better. A Russia, says the Briskarov, is different. A Russia is somebody that you can give him tshuva even at the last minute of his life, but he won't take advantage of it. You know why? Because he's in denial of the fact that he's so bad. I have no problem saying that I'm bad. I'm bad, I have charota, I want to do tshuva, now I want to be good again. But if a person has an attitude that, I'm not so bad, because you know why? Other people are doing the same exact thing as I am. And if they're doing the same thing that I am, then I'm okay. That's like the theory of relativity when it comes to Averis. Everything is relative. It's true that I'm doing Averis, but other people are doing much worse Averis. If other people are doing much worse Averis, then I'm okay, relatively speaking. And so, because a Russia is always grasping at straws, they're always trying to find a way to escape their evil, to escape their perception that they're bad, they're always looking to say, aha, I'm not so bad because it's happening to him also. So I don't have to take Musa from it because other people are also in hot water. So it's okay. 
because of that attitude, Akadosh Baruch Hu was so careful, he wanted to leave no room for a Russia for these Mitzrayim to be able to look at Klal Yisrael in any which way and say, there's something wrong with them also. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu understands the psyche of a Russia is that if there is room for a Russia to point fingers and to say, oh, there's a few Jews also dying tonight, they're Bechayim, they died, so it must be that we're not so bad, then that would be a terrible Chil Hashem, that would ruin the entire purpose of Makas Bechayim. Makas Bechayim is fundamentally a message directed straight at the Egyptians saying, you are bad, you have done wrong, and you have to do tshuva. And if you understand that, then the purpose of the Makkah was met. But if we leave room to point fingers and say, oh, we're not so bad in any which way, by Cheshach, by Makkah's Bechayres, by saying, Bachatzais, and then it wouldn't happen according to their reckoning at exactly Chatzais, and that would say, oh, something is off. If something by a Machu is off, then that would mean that, that Mitzrayim would have a way to not do tshuva. And if they would have a way of not doing tshuva, then that would sort of undermine the entire ayach of the Makkas, which was to bring Mitzrayim to their knees and to the obvious conclusion that Kedosh is the Rabbi Nishraelam, Klai Yisrael is Klai Yisrael, and it's time for Mitzrayim to recognize the greatness, the Yadah Chazak of the Rabbi Nishraelam. That's one Mahalach. But I think there's a much more fundamental Mahalach that's very Negea to us every single day. By the fact that we see how careful the Torah was to make sure that the, that the Mitzrayim don't see bad in Klai Yisrael, that they don't see that we're dying also, that, we, that there's Jews that are saying amongst themselves, we don't want to leave Egypt, and they're going to die. That there are Jews on the night of Makkah's Pachairis that are firstborn that are also dying, and that might mean that we're also Rashaim. That Meshach Rabbeinu would go so far as to change the word of the Rebbein Shalom from Bachatzais to Kachatzais, just so that the Gayim wouldn't say that Meshach is a Vadai, there's something slightly wrong with what Meshach Rabbeinu said. He claims to be a Navi, he claims to be an Ish Emes, and there's something off, even by a few seconds even though he's, he has a perfect track record up until this point. What we see from this is how important it is to be pure and to be clean in the eyes of the Gayim. In the eyes of the Gayim, how important it is because they are looking at us. You see from the Chazal, you see from the Gra, you see what's going on. The Gayim are looking and examining and weighing every single word, every single letter that we're saying. And they want to see whether or not we're, we're Taka people of truth, people of honesty, people of morality. They're looking at us. They're obsessed by us. And therefore, we have an, an obligation to go with Nimishur Sadin and make sure that they never are disappointed. And they always say, wow, that's Taka. A Jew is a person that keeps his word. A Jew is consistent. A Jew is clean. That's the message, I believe, that we should be taking from all of these notions, these concepts that we find in the parasha of the obsession that the Torah seems to have. 
that Mitzrayim should not be able to have any excuse to say something negative about us shows that we have to be very careful when we are presenting ourselves to Gayim that we're taka honest and we're taka people that keep to our word exactly. There's a famous story that's brought in Devarim Rabbah in Parak Gimel, Medrash Gimel. Maisa Rabshim and Shetach, Shaloka Hamar Echad Mishmael. Shimon ben Shetach was a Tana. He bought a Hamar. He bought a donkey from a certain Arab. Halchu Talmidav Umatsu by Evan Achas Taiva Tzuyulai B'Tzavarei. So his Talmidim went and examined this Hamar that he bought and found that there was a diamond necklace around its neck. So the Talmidim got very excited. The Talmidim said, Rabbi, Birchas Hashem hi Tashir. It's a Pasuk in Mishlei. The Brach of Hashem made you wealthy. You just won the lottery. It's a very expensive diamond that we found. You bought a cheap donkey and lo and behold, you found a very expensive diamond. It's yours. Amalei Reb Shem Ben Shetach Chamar Lakachti Evan Taiva Lakachti when I bought from that Arab a donkey, I only bought a donkey. I didn't buy from him any Evan. I didn't buy a diamond from him. So he went and he returned the donkey to a certain Arab, to that Arab. The of And that Arab said upon Rav Shimon ben Shetach, Baruch Hashem Elikei Shimon ben Shetach. Blessed is the God of Shimon ben Shetach. This is a classical example of making a Kiddush Hashem amongst Gayim. Halachically, maybe Shimon ben Shetach would have been able to find heterim, find reasons that he did not have to return that diamond. But he knew that when given an opportunity to make a, a Kiddush Hashem in the world, and that uh, an Arab should be able to say, Baruch Elikei Shimon ben Shetach, says, I can't resist that opportunity. I cannot resist taking that opportunity and making Kiddush Hashem. Because when a Yid is able to make Kiddush Hashem, the Gayim notice that. And the Gayim are able to equate the Rabbi with Klai Yisrael. Baruch Hashem Elikei Shimon ben Shetach. They don't just say, wow, that's an honest man. They say that that's a reflection on who their God is. They must have a God who is amazing because look at the people that he chose. There's a, a Yid in Flatbush who is perhaps one of the wealthiest men today in the, in the world, but he's definitely one of the wealthiest from Yid in the world. And a very posh, very, he lives a very simple life very chashiva family, has a lot of tamid chacham in the family. And he has one of the, the biggest real estate empires in, in America. Many, many thousands, tens of thousands of, of apartments that he owns, many skyscrapers in Manhattan, very chashiva office buildings all over. He's worth, he's estimated to be worth close to $2 billion with a B. 
And how did he get started? How did he get started? He was a, uh, he's starting out in real estate. His family owned like a little, I think a little apartment building somewhere in the Bronx maybe. And he bought a new house for himself. A nice simple house in Brooklyn, I think on East 9th Street. And after they bought it, I think the story goes that one of his children were jumping on the bed of the house. You know, in their room, they were jumping on the bed and something gave way underneath the bed and like the floorboard sort of fell in. A strange thing. So they took the bed away and they opened up the floorboard and they found there was like a box in there, like a, like, you know, like you see in the movies, a treasure chest full of diamonds and rubies and cash and bonds or whatever. I think it was like many, many tens and tens of thousands of dollars worth of wealth. And this is a time that, you know, maybe it was $40,000, but that was when $40,000 was a lot of money. And, you know, like it would be, let's say, a million dollars today, perhaps. And, you know, he could have used a million dollars, especially starting out. He has a little business, a little real estate. You know, he wants to buy more. You want to build up your business. You don't want to give back that money. You could use that money. He bought the house. He went to Ramesha Feinstein. And he asked Ramesha, what should he do with the money? So... Ramesha basically, after being done, also whether or not he has to give it back, but he says, I recommend that you do give it back, and you'll make a Kiddush Hashem, and the Rebbeinu Shalom will reward you in kind. If you give it back, if you're Aymed bin Yisrael, it's a hard thing to do. Not so simple to do that. To give money that, you know, I bought the house, I bought everything in the house. I think that was also, when you buy, it, when you buy a house in the contract, it basically says that you didn't just buy the house, you bought everything in the house. You bought the chandelier and you bought the washing machines, whatever, the light fixtures, everything in the house is yours. So maybe in a technical way, he bought the diamonds also. Ramesha says, give it back. He gave it back. He created a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. And, and the rest is history. And he acknowledges, I think, to this day, you know, the brach of Ramesha, that I'll get wealthy if I make a Kiddush Hashem like this, Today, you know, he's literally one of the wealthiest people in the world. More recently, within the last few years, there was a, an amazing story that took place in Connecticut. There is a, a rabbi in yeshiva in New Haven. His name is Rabnayach Murov. And he went on Craigslist. He wanted to buy a desk for his, for his house. So he went on this Craigslist and he found a desk for $150 and he bought it. He picked it up from somebody nearby, a non-Jewish middle-aged woman. And he was moving this desk into his office, but it was off by a fraction of an inch. He wasn't able to fit in. He tried every which way. He took off inches and nothing was able to get this desk into his office. So he had to basically take apart the whole desk. And he took the top of the desk off and there was like a wedge between like the, the back of the drawer and the, 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 the desk. He saw like a plastic bag. And in the plastic bag, he saw that there was money in it. And he took out the money, and there were like neatly stacked bundles of $100 bills, and it came out to $98,000. 
$98,000 for $150 desk is not a bad return. It's a good, it's a good investment. So it was him and his wife and another person in the room, and they looked at each other and they say, you know, this doesn't happen in real life. This, you know, it's crazy. $98,000 for a Rebbe, you know, to see $98,000 in his life is some, uh, you know, you have to make a, you have to make a, you know, Shafiyamu. But, but, uh, but, but to, to be able to keep $98,000 and you have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of responsibilities and, you know, it's an expensive life and $98,000. And they knew right away that they had to give back this money. There was no Shiloh that they had to give back the money. And they basically called the lady back. Um, I think he filmed it. Like while while he was making that phone call, he you know we live in the age of YouTube and everything, so you have to you know everything. If you didn't film it, it didn't happen. So it was filmed, and um, and the woman was like going crazy. That was money that she had. You know that was her nest egg, and she couldn't find it. And she thought like it was misplaced somewhere else in the house. She never thought that it would fall behind, you know, a desk drawer, and, and basically she wrote him, she gave a little bit of a reward to him, and she paid him for the desk, that he, you know, the cost of the desk, $150, and gave a little money for the kids, he had four children at the time, and she wrote him a letter that said basically, I do not think that there are too many people in this world who would have done what you did by calling me. I do like to believe that there are still good people left in this crazy world we live in, and you certainly are one of them. And this was uh, something that was broadcast. I think he asked of Shmuel Kamenetsky whether or not he should be mefarsed in this. And Shmuel says, absolutely. He says, we're living in such in a day and age that there's so many Chil Hashem's taking place. There's so many financial indiscretions that are taking place by people that are noticeably Jewish, recognizably, sometimes Orthodox, and if you have an opportunity to somehow, you know, level the playing field somewhat and inject a dose of Kiddush Hashem in this world that's so used to seeing Phil Hashem, says you have an absolute obligation to do it. And this story like broke, and it was like in every paper and every you know newscast, and it was a huge story. And you saw a from person that was being interviewed and saying how there was no suffolk that he should return and that he had to return it. That, that is a Kiddush Hashem of epic proportions. Because the Gayim are looking at us constantly. The Gayim are always analyzing us and watching us and waiting for us to slip up even a mashur, even a bachatzais, kachatzais. That's enough for a guy to say that Meshach is a badayu. If something like that's enough to say Moshe's about God, imagine what it looks like to a guy when they see Chil Hashem after Chil Hashem. <laughs> Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was a rob in a city in Lithuania, a small town, and there was a a post office man, like a clerk that worked in the post office. And he started like giving too much change back to the Jews. He wanted to test the Jews to see how honest they were. And the guy and the Jews would go to their Rav to Yaakov and say, Do we have to return it? It's a Tais Akum and this and that. And he says, Yes, absolutely you have to return it. And every single time that this came, 
they would go back and give the money back. If it was a dime, if it was a nickel, if it was a dollar, ten dollars, whatever the mistake was, they'd return it. Time after time. When the Holocaust came, this guy, this postman, he was, he went and he was Meister Nefesh to save Yiddish lives. Because he says that it's such a people that are so honest and so, have such integrity, he says, I have to risk my life for them. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky knew, Baruch HaKadosh, that this post office man was trying to test us and trying to see how honest we really are. And, but it's not just a postman, it's every single person. They're watching us. They're seeing how we behave. They're seeing how we park our cars, how we double park our cars, how we triple park our cars. They see how we are, how we act when we're in public places. They see how we do business. They see how we hold open a door. If you're going into a public place, one of my pet peeves, I've got a lot of them, but one of them, one of my main ones is when you're going into a building, the easiest way to make a Kiddush Hashem is if you see somebody like with your peripheral vision walking behind you and they're also coming, let's say, into a post office or into a bank or into a restaurant, you just wait an extra, or into yeshiva, you wait an extra few seconds and you hold the door for them. The worst thing in the world, to me, one of the worst things in the world, is when you just, and a lot of times you see little kids doing this, and, but you see older people also, they just completely, like they go in, they, they, you know, they have to get into the buildings, they just go in, and they slip through the door, and they shut the door in your face. And it's very, very, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, it's the worst Chil Hashem in the world. But I'll tell you one thing, it's a tremendous Kiddush Hashem when you don't do that. When you hold the door open for somebody, and, you know, whether it's a Yid or a guy, it's appreciated. It's like you're giving them a little covet. You're giving them, you're making them feel like they're, like they're worth something. I remember I was once walking into a certain shul in, in, the, in the neighborhood, and I was walking with like a, a Holocaust survivor, like an old man, very chash of a person who went through a lot. And there was like this little kid that was, you know, that, that was like mamish three steps in front of us. He opens the door and he just like lets it slam right behind us, right on our faces. And like this older man says to me, he says, did you ever see such a chutzpah in your life? You don't, a little kid doesn't know to open a door. Like, who are his parents? It's a simple thing, but it's such an easy way to make a Kiddush Hashem. Every day you go today, you're going to go shopping on Main Street. Hold the door. People are coming in, they're coming out. Hold the door. And then there's so many, that's an easy one, but there are so many things that we do, you know, right and we do wrong. And whether we do something right or wrong is the difference between Shemaim and Aretz. It's not just like, all right, no one does this. It doesn't matter what nobody does. We are held on a much higher pedestal. The Gayim are looking at everything we do. You don't need to look further than the United Nations. The United Nations is a building that was built purely for, you know, to, to basically undermine Klausel. That's what it is. It's basically, it's a group of people that meet every day to figure out how are we going to tar and feather the Jewish people. That's Pasha. Everybody knows that. I mean, there's, there are nations in the world that are killing millions of people on a daily basis, you know, in, in Rwanda, and in, you know, there's not a single resolution in the United Nations against them, against the Arab countries. A yid kills somebody, you know, you know, just not completely, you know, accidentally, and there's like 10 UN resolutions against that. 
you're building a, a kitchen in, in, you know, in, in, in one of the Shachim, you know, there has to be like a, a world conference in the United Nations. What are we going to do about this problem? The whole world, the whole world is up in smoke. The whole world is burning. But in Eretz Yisrael, there's like these things, and, and that's what the world is, is consumed. You know why? The reason is simple, because there's always been an obsession in the world about what is up with those Jews. What's going on with them? Are they good? Are they bad? What are they? They're the chosen nation. Are they talk of the chosen nation or not? And it's our responsibility. We can say, well, you know, well, they're crazy and the UN is a bunch of Rasham and therefore write them all off. But it also creates a heightened sense of responsibility in our part if we know that we're under a microscope, if we know that people are always looking at us, not just in the United Nations, but on Main Street. And, and wherever we are, Jews and Gayim alike, everybody's looking at us. And so we have an obligation to make sure to never be Mechal Hashem Shemayim. To never be Mechal Hashem Shemayim. You know, the Rambam writes in Hilchas Yisaydi Atayra, he speaks about the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, and he says basically what we're speaking about today. I mean, the, the main mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem is when you sanctify your life, when you have to die, Yehar Valyavar, it's in front of ten Yidin. It's 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 not necessarily in front of Gayim. The Mikhtam Eliyahu writes that even though the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem is really in front of Jews, but somebody that's sensitive knows that it's really also to be ex- extended to Gayim as well. I mean, when we're children in yeshiva, I think we, we think that the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem is not in front of Gayim. They, you know, your principal, I remember very vividly how my principal, all the Shalom, used to always get on the school bus whenever we're going on a class trip somewhere and say, you know, don't scream out the window and don't run around in the bus. And don't, when you get to the museum, you know, you have to act very, you can't make a Chil Hashem in front of the Gayim. He was a Holocaust survivor. So he was acutely aware of the Gayim and, and the Gayish perception of the Jews. So I always thought, Kiddush and Chil Hashem, that's just for Gayim. You know, you can, if, if I act in a way that's inappropriate in Shul, or, you know, that's okay. The truth is, it's the opposite. The real mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem is within Kal Yisrael. The Mithraelion says that we extend it also to Gayim, that Gayim also, you know, should think highly of, of what a Yid is. But it's really within our own communities, with our own Dalit Paisalim. Listen to what the Rambam says at the end, after he speaks about the mitzvahs of Kiddush Hashem and Chil Hashem, as far as dying al Kiddush Hashem. He says, The Rambam gives us a Muslim Shmuz in the middle of the Sefer. And he says, I want you to know there are also other things that are Negea Chil Hashem. If a person that's chashuv does dvarim shabriyes miranim achera b'shvilam, people, you leave people room to criticize you. You're a chashuv a person, and by the way, a chashuv brother, I'm speaking about like it sounds like he's speaking about like a major gadol adar. I think today. It's basically anyone that wears the yarmulke. I think it's safe to say that you are bechlal kiddush Hashem, achil Hashem. Achil Hashem says the Ram is somebody that 
you do something, you're a recognizable Jew, you're a Hashemah person, you're a Ben Taira, and you do something that people could open their mouths and sort of cast aspersions against you. Even though you're not doing something that's an Abeira Mamish, you're doing something which is gray. It's, a, it's something that could go either way. That's a chil Hashem kigayim shalokach vein anoisin tmehamekach lauter. You go into a store and instead of paying right away, you take it on credit and then you push off the credit. Another example says the Ramam is you are laughing a little bit too loud. You're laughing. You're carrying on, or you're eating and drinking in a very like frivolous way. I'll never forget. I was once in a restaurant. I took my wife out for an anniversary to a very chashva restaurant in the city, and there were people. There was people that I knew there, and you know, from people, not you know, Balabatim, from Balabatim, from a place that I used to live. I recognize them. I I can't tell you how revolted I was by their behavior in that restaurant. They were drunk. They were screaming. They were cursing. They were carrying on to the to the degree that a waiter had to come over and like quiet them down. These are people. I'm not talking about people that are you know from a barn somewhere. These are people, chashuva people from nice homes. It's so easy to make a chil Hashem. It's so easy, and that's in front of me, not the waiter. I'm not, you know, I'm not even talking about the waiter. Is medayim in the restaurant? I'm talking about me. It's a mamshach. You look at them like fed. This is this is what the, this is the best that Kali Yisrael has to offer. The Ramam says that's a chul shem shemayim. You're not just ruining your reputation. It's not your, you know, your good name that's on the that's on the chopping board. It's the rabbinish You're bringing the rabbinish kaviyachol down with you because people say he's a Jew. This is what this is what the Jewish people are all about. They're drunk pyrim. He says, "Oishet ibura imabrias ena dinachas veena mekavim b'sever panim yafes ela bal ketata v'kas." If a person's midas are nakod, a person speaks in a way that's grub. You just don't have a nice tone of voice about you. You get angry very quickly, and you fly off the handle. You get a bad temper. And people look at you like you're, you're in the middle of a of a store somewhere. You start screaming at somebody else. You start carrying on like a mishogana. That's a chol shem shamayim. You're being mechalal the rabbanu shalom's name. The kayetze b'dvarim ha'elo ha'kolafi godly shalchacham sarch shiyadatek al atzmai v'yaslof nimeshur sadin. If you're a ben tyra, if you're a ben tyra, you have to says the Rambam. You have to be very careful. You can't act in a certain way. Aye, but the Goyim act that way. Doesn't mean you're not a Goyim. Goyim are able to get away with a lot more than we are. What makes a society, a norm in society acceptable is not what the Goyim are doing. We have a different standard. We are, we are held to a higher standard. Rav Schwab has a great bar. Rav Schwab says an apostle that says, the that you should tread upon their highest places, on the on the Gaim's highest places, you should tread upon. That's like a bracha, that Israel is going to trample the Gaim, you know, when they need to. 
So Schwab says a different shot in the puzzle. He says, Their highest place, meaning where there you take the firmest guy in the world, you take the most ethical, honest guy, Tidrai. That's where he begins his journey. Our journey is not, you know, designed by the template of what a guy does. A guy might, you know, be able to get away with certain tax loopholes. A guy might be able to act in a certain way that's a little sketchy. That's not what a yid is supposed to do. A yid is supposed to say, let me see the frumous guy. Okay, you're the frumous guy. You are where my journey begins. That's where I'll, that's a good starting place, but now I'm going to go higher and higher. I'm going to make sure to be the most honest person that I can be, the most ethical, the most well-behaved. Because Lama Yemim Mitzrayim, the Mitzrayim are always looking at us. They're always looking and waiting for us to slip up. Are there any Jews out there that are also dying, you know, on the night of Makkah's Bechayim? Because if they are, we're not so bad, then it's okay, because if the Jews dying, then it must be okay. Whatever the Jews doing is fine. And when Gayim see that Jews act in a terrible way, that's a Mechal Shem Shamayim. It's mamish, a blatant desecration of the Rabbi Yisham's name. We are held to a much higher standard. And the Rambam ends and he says, What's a Kiddush Hashem? V'cheinim diktek ha'chacham al-atzmai v'yadiburai b'nachas im-abriyais. If the Chacham is medactic on himself and he speaks nicely to people, you know, sometimes you meet a person, it's just a pleasant person. You just see, you know, how refined he is, how, how beautiful a human being that is. It's just a person that mixes nicely. He works in a company. You don't have to stay in a base medish your whole life. It's possible for a year to go and be in corporate America. Corporate America very often, you know, has a lot of shenanigans in it. That's true, but still, it's possible for a person, for a bentayra, to be ethical and refined. A person can make a kiddush Hashem. So many times we have talmidim that leave yeshiva. I just met one recently. Says he's in a place like in a, in a very waspy hedge fund or something. I don't know. He says all guys. I'm the only Jew. I said, is that hard for you? He says, no. He says, it gives me the opportunity every single day to Makadish Shemayim. He says, because I'm acting ethically, I'm acting morally, and the guy you see, wow, that's, I'm the only exposure that they have. They never met a Jew. They thought Jews had horns. And now they see that a Jew is a person that's honest and ethical. It gives me the golden opportunity to Makadish Shemayim Barabim. He says, if you mix well with people, it's a whole nother shmuz. People very often hurt us. People very often insult us. And the natural tendency is, he insulted me, I have to retaliate. I can't, I can't, I can't just let that go. Okay, you have that option. But, says the Ramam, if a person is able to hold it in, I'm not talking about extreme cases of being abused and bullying, of course. I'm talking about just some natural being shtacht and being tread upon, being abused, being, being, you know, people aren't being nice to me. You have the right to, you know, to do something, I guess, to a certain degree. But if you take it and you don't give it back, 
That's a kid of Shem Shamayim. It's fine. You know, somebody stabbed me in the back at work. He, you know, wasn't nice. I could do something, but I'm going to hold my fire. That's a kid of Shem Shamayim. Restraint. Even if people are not being nice to you, you're still honorable to them. You don't change. Because other people are not nice around you. What does that have to do with you? That just is a... It's just a commentary on who they are. But why does that have to bring us down? We are the Amanitchar. We are B'nai Torah. We are people that represent the Kavad HaTorah. So people around us are, 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 are in the muck and in, the, and, and, and in mud and schmutz. That means that we have to sully ourselves as well. Dealing honestly in business. I'm always, I just, I look the right way. I look the right way. Tfilin, Sitsis. I look like a Ben Tyra. I act like a Ben Tyra. Says you're not supposed to separate from society. You're not supposed to be like a mute. You're supposed to be normal. Everybody is praising this person. And they love him. They're people that are beloved. They can't wait. They just, they chalish for him. They just love this person. There are people like that. Just people that are good, honest, fine people that would never be Mechal Shem Shran. They're just, they're just a walking ambassador for Tyra. Hashem. This is being Mekadeh Shem Shamayim. The Allah Kasav Aymran on such a person the Torah says, the Pasuk says, Li Avdi Ata Yisrael. You are Klai Yisrael, my servants, Asher Bacha Espar. Prophet says, I take pride in you. I pride myself in you. Hakadish Baruch Hu realizes, think about it from the Rabbi Shalom's perspective. The Rabbi Shalom is basically riding on our coattails, Tabiyachim. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's very name and reputation is riding on the fact that he has one people on planet Earth that are fine, good, honest, solid, ethical people beyond any shemets of, of, of anything dishonest, of anything immoral. And when we act in an appropriate way, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sheps nachas. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, that's my Ebed, I get pride from you. I take pride in you. You are my people. You're, you're my Abadim. We're held to a higher standard. And we see that from this parasha. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is so concerned. What would the Mitzrim say in this case, in that case? We have to make sure to do it in Cheshach. We have to make sure that you don't leave your house. We have to make sure that you say, Bachatzeis, Kachatzeis. Why? Because of Egyptians? Who cares about these Egyptians? These Egyptians, we have to concern ourselves. They're going to say, Badam, they're the ones that are calling us Badam. These taskmasters that put us through 210 years of, of Gehenim, we have to care about what they're going to say. And the answer is yes. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name rides on us. And if we're honest, and the Gayim see that we're honest, and they are looking at us and don't make any, have no doubt about the fact that this is all true. 
If you think that the Goyim are not looking at you when you're on the train and when you're at a ball game and when you're, you know, when you're eating somewhere and when you're, on, when, when you're at work, you're wrong. The Goyim are looking at us constantly, constantly. They're obsessed with us. I don't know exactly why, but they are. And that's why when there are, when there are stories, unfortunately, you know, in, in the papers about prominent Jewish people, and this is happening all too often, all too often, whether it's schemes, whether it's, you know, money laundering, whether it's financial, financial improprieties, whether it's Rabbanim acting in an appropriate manner. These are Chil Hashem's that, you know, we can't even begin to imagine the way the Rabbanim Shalom is embarrassed Kaviyachal of such, uh, when things happen. It's terrible for the Rabbanim Shalom, it's terrible for Klal Yisrael. We suffer, every single Yid suffers every time one of these scandalous stories break and there's, they, they become so common, so often, that, you know, few summers ago, there was like a terrible summer, um, that there were a few major Chil Hashem's. Major. I don't even want to talk about them. But somebody came over to me and said, he says, I walk around, he says, I always wore my yarmulke by work. He says, this is the first time in my professional life that I'm seriously considering not wearing a yarmulke anymore. I'm so embarrassed to be a Jew. I'm embarrassed. Every day on the front cover of the papers, there's another scandal involving a Shemr Shabbos Yid in a terrible way. Or not a Shemr Shabbos Yid. You know, what Bernie Madoff did to Klal Yisrael would take, you know, a thousand years to repair. A thousand years. One, one person doing shtick. The, the, the ramifications to that are so profound. And he's not the only one. There are many, many others. There are many others. Adayim. And it's important for us to say to ourselves in a yeshiva that we are resolved and we are focused upon changing that. On using our ability to be Makadeshem Shemayim. We're recognized, we're cognizant of the fact that Gayim looked at us. You don't have to be the most powerful politician in New York to have, to have the guy focused on you. Even if you're a little person in New York, a person that nobody knows who you are, you're just as powerful to the guy. And you have to make sure to Mekadishem Shemaim wherever you are, whether you're in yeshiva, in front of other Jews, and in front of Gayim that are, you know, I'll tell you, sometimes professors come over to me and they say, you know, they, they, they know that I'm the mashkiach, they think that I'm in, uh, you know, that it's, I'm, 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 uh, you know, I'm responsible for every single thing that happens morally in the school. Maybe I am. And, you know, they say, you know, you have to speak to the boys. Sometimes, you know, most of them are wonderful, but sometimes I have a boy, like, they come into my class, and they put their feet up on the chair in front of them, and they're eating, you know, like a sandwich right in front of my face. It's not nice. It's not nice. He said they would never do that in your class, so why would they do that in my and, and they're right. You know, just because we're in a lander college for men building doesn't mean that we're mufka from these halachas. There are many, many opportunities that we have to make a Kiddush Hashem in the building, 
And there are many opportunities that we have to make a chil Hashem in the building. And sometimes, again, I'm not myself any better necessarily, but sometimes, you know, after a long Shabbos or a long Yantif, you know, you come in and the building is mamash a churvin. It's a churvin. You know, and, you know, and the janitors come in and they complain to me. They say, what, what's called, what happened over here? Was there like a, you know, some sort of like a major party here for the last three days? They're like, you know, there's tissues and, you know, every toilet is flooded and there's, there's paper all over the bathrooms and in the hallways it's schmutzy and, uh, you know, every, it's a mess. You know, and the dormitories, you know, dormitories, you know what they look like. It's a chil Hashem. We wouldn't get away with this at home. And we shouldn't get away with it in yeshiva. We have an opportunity to be mekadi shem shemaim, even if it's a janitor, even if the janitor is not a chashav a guy in your, your eyes, he's chashav because he's a human being. So tell him like him and you have to treat him respectfully. And he's, he's looking at you. He's not blind. He's not deaf. He's not stupid. He knows. And whether we are good or bad is very evident to them. And just like the Ramam writes, the Kiddush Hashem is not just with these major things, you know, when you're being Mekadishim Shemayim al Kiddush Hashem, like in the Holocaust, or, or the Spanish Inquisition dying at the, at the stake, that's Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush Hashem is a daily, is a daily mitzvah. It's a daily mitzvah. Rabbi Victor Miller says on this Ramam that I quoted, says, he says a big Kiddush. I'm, I'm gonna say a very big Kiddush on the Ramam, says Rabbi Victor Miller. He says, you see from here that, you know, it's a mitzvah. Kiddush Hashem, to act like a Kiddush Hashem, it's a mitzvah, he says, just like tefillin. You don't say, well, you know, tefillin I'll leave to the big rabbis. That's for the rabbis to do tefillin. I'm a regular person, I don't have to put on tefillin. Tefillin is a mitzvah, and every bar mitzvah boy has a chiyah to do. He says, Kiddush Hashem is a mitzvah for every yid. It's a, it's a mitzvah. This Kiddush Hashem, the Ramam says, as if, you know, as if it's the regular mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, if it's the regular mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, he says, first of all, you have to know that we're all holding by it. Even if you think you're not holding there, you are holding there. You have an obligation every day to be Mekadosh Hashem And he says, mitzvah strich is kavana. He says, you should have kavana when you're acting, when you're holding that door today on Main Street for somebody. You should have kavana that I'm being Mekadosh Hashem right now. It's a, it's a mitzvah. You need kavana to do that mitzvah. These are times that call for major acts of Kiddush Hashem. Because there is so much Chil Hashem out there. There's so much Chil Hashem that it makes you cry. It makes you cry. It's so intolerable. It's so... It should, it should, it should rattle us to the core when we see these major headlines of Chil Hashem. And I'm not here at all to criticize or to be judge and jury executioner... I don't know what happened, and I don't know, but in general, we have to be so careful, because we are in Gaulus by the, you know, just by the, the pure chesed of the, the Medina. And if we keep on rocking the boat, if we keep showing that we're not ethical and we're not honest, then what's happening in Europe is coming to us as well. What happens in Europe, the terrible anti-Semitism, the, the blatant rabid anti-Semitism which is plaguing Europe is only across a little body of water to America. And if we keep on doing terrible things, we're not Mekadish Shemayim, we're constantly being Mechaul Shemayim to Farhesya, then Rahmanul Itzlan, you know, the safety and security that we've enjoyed here for so many years is very in jeopardy. 
And so we have to be ambassadors. We have to, every day we go out, we have Kavana. I want to be Mekadosh Shemayim. I want to be Mekadosh Shemayim. And Pesach Kron has a great story about Kiddush Hashem. And we'll end with that. That he was in an airport. And he went through the security in the airport. And then he went to his gate and he was sitting by, by the gate and the TSA officers, these, you know, the airport, you know, customs officers, they're running after him and they, they say, oh, um, is this your cell phone? He says, my, yeah, it's my cell phone. He says, ha, ha, you know, he says, oh, you left it in the bin, you know, when you went through security. He says, well, thank you very much. He says, but how did you remember that that's my cell phone? It doesn't have my name on it. Says you re- you remember like the thousands of people that go through the airport without you know every single person you know who's you know whose cell phone it is. He says no. He says but you were the only person when they passed who passed through security and said thank you for protecting me. You know we'll remember that. We'll remember that. So after I heard the story. I went through, I was going somewhere in the airport in LaGuardia, so I also wanted to be a mini case up road. So, you know, so I said to the, I said to the officer as I was going through customs, everybody's giving him dirty looks and complaining, he's being, you know, pat down and all that. I said, thank you very much for, for that. And he says, oh, you heard the rabbi's speech? <laughs> Apparently, like, everybody's doing it now. It's a cool thing to do. But it's good to hear the rabbi's speech. It's a good thing. It's important for us. It's important for us when we see a police officer to thank the police officer for what he's doing, for putting his, his life on the line for us every day. And the firemen and the, you know, and the sanitation workers who schlep every day, pick up the garbage. And you think, well, you know, he gets paid for it. So what if he gets paid for it? That doesn't, that doesn't deny him the, the, the obligation on our part of our parasatayv. We have an opportunity every minute of every day to shine and to radiate that Arla Gayim. And Halavai, we should be Zaychet to do that because if we do, then Amitz Hashem, that will be the, the way, the only way to bring Mashiach to Kenabim Heir, Amin, Amin, Amin.